It reminds me of something I heard a, read a Puritan said once, that there's some text in the Bible, when you approach it, you feel like an ant that's trying to carry a bale of hay. And I feel that way as we read this text together. So if you'll turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, we're going to read from verse 7 down to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> Sometimes Bible teachers talk about different writers in the New Testament. That Some of the writings, it's like it reaches high watermark. And uh, in the book of Ephesians, for example, Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 that we might be filled up to the very fullness of God. A good number of Bible students and Bible scholars believe that's kind of the high watermark of Paul's writings. And as a result, then after that, things don't seem quite as intense. When I read uh, the first epistle of John, there's lots of reasons why I like it. But I think the passage we're going to read together, to me, is like the high watermark of this epistle. And I think you'll understand why as we read the text together. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Beginning to read at verse number 7, John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us or toward us or among us, kind of depending on the translation. By this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen... Now it gets very intense in this verse. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another... God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses, that is, acknowledges in reality, that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he and God. Do you sense the intenseness of what he's saying to us? And this is incredible, absolutely incredible. Verse number 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this the love is his by this love is perfected with us, or maybe better in us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, that is, the Bema Seat of Christ, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother. He is a liar. 
For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Why don't we just pray and go home? What an incredible passage of Scripture. Don't you agree? I mean, it strikes depths that probably none of us will ever be able to get to. I know I can't. But we're going to try to think our way through it uh, together this morning. John Merrick uh, was born on August 5, the year 1860, in Leicester, England. By the time he was about five years of age, he began to, his body became very, very disformed. And at the time, they didn't know what was happening to him, but eventually, his body became just all out of proportion. He had a head that weighed 20 pounds. His hands were incredibly large, had these large growths all over his body, especially on his face. He came to be known as the Elephant Man. And uh, John Merrick's mother died when he was about 11. His his dad remarried, and but he was not well accepted because of his physical appearance. And uh, he eventually took a job in a workhouse in England, but eventually he went out of that and became almost in a circus, almost like a freak show. And one day this show was just across the street from the London Hospital, there was a doctor there by the name of Frederick Treves, and Frederick Treves knew about this John Merrick. He had seen him before and was aware of his physical condition. So he went across the street and invited uh, John Merrick to come and stay at the hospital. So Dr. Treves and his wife began to show a great deal of interest in this John Merrick. And actually, John Merrick was quite an accomplished person. He was very, very good with his hand. He could build all kinds of little instrument uh, kind of toys that that kids could use. But he was very much unaccepted. And obviously, you can imagine how he must have felt in public with with his condition the way it, it was. He actually lived to be 27 years of age. And he had to sleep because his head weighed 20 pounds. He had to sleep sitting up in bed. And the night of his death, and I want to just tell you a couple of things about this, but the year, the night of his death, he decided he wanted to lay with his head on, straight on the pillow, and he died that night. But in the year 1980, you don't mind if I refer to a Hollywood film, do you? There was a film that was actually made about John Merrick, and John Hurt was an Englishman who played the part of Merrick and Anthony Hopkins played the part of the doctor. And there were a couple of scenes in it. I saw it. i got to tell you this without it affecting me. But uh, there were a couple of scenes uh, in it after he had spent a lot of time in the hospital uh, with, uh, with this doctor. And on one occasion, he never met the doctor's wife. A period of time went by before Merrick was able to meet the doctor's wife. And one day... Uh, Dr. Treve introduced him to his wife, and uh, 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 Merrick said to his wife when he saw her, he said, would you like to see a picture of my mother? And he pulled out a small portrait of his mother and showed it to her, and she said, oh, Mr. Merrick, she's so beautiful. And then Merrick then sadly said, 
She has the face of an angel. I must have been a great disappointment to her. No, Mr. Merrick, Mrs. Treve says, no son as loving as you could ever have been a disappointment. And then John Merrick said to her, he said, if I, if I could only find her so she could see me with such lovely friends here now, perhaps she would love me as I am. That was the first scene, very moving scene. If you get a chance to watch it, I would encourage you to watch it. I think you can still find it somewhere, probably on Amazon.com. I'm not sure. At any rate, there was another uh, scene in the film that greatly affected me. He's near the end of his life. He's 27 years old. He's been cared for by the tree family and accepted by a few others because they had begun to introduce him to others. And he was suffering terrible. And Dr. Treves said to him, actually, I think it was the night that he died. He said, are you okay now? And Merrick said, my life is full because now I know I'm loved. I wanted to relate that to you because it's a bit of a transition into what I consider to be one of the deepest theological passages in all of the New Testament. 1 John 4, verses 7 to 21. Because this chapter is talking about love. Now, the kind of love that we read about in 1 John is a little bit different than the kind of love that the doctor showed. But he did show interest and concern for John Merrick. So just a couple of uh, uh, introductory comments before we think about this passage, because I think it answers two or three questions that are really helpful to us. One is that in the New Testament, the word love, as you know, there are different words for love. One of the words is phileo, and that really means friendship. When Jesus said to Peter in John 21, do you love me? He used the word phileo. He meant, do you, do you have affection for me? Are you, are you really my friend? Then there's another word that you don't find in the New Testament. It's the word from which we get our word eros or erotic. That's more of a sexual term. But then the other term is the word agape, and that's the word that occurs mostly in the New Testament, and it's, it's an, it's, the meaning of it has to do with God himself, because he originates this kind of love. And this love can really be defined, I think most helpfully, as that Christian love in the New Testament is seeking the highest good for the other person. So obviously when the Lord Jesus came into the world, he was seeking our highest good, wasn't he? And so he came into the world, he died on the cross, and made it possible that you and I could be saved. Now this text that we've read together, if you noticed in our reading, the number of times that the word love occurs in the text. In all of First John, well more than 30 times, John uses this word love. And as you know from other parts of the New Testament, Love really is the, it's the badge of our discipleship. Remember Jesus said in John chapter 13, you know, if you love one another, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. Colossians chapter 3, Paul says that love is kind of the, it's kind of the string that ties all the other characteristics in the Christian life together. So when John comes to deal with love, I, I find it particularly moving. Because remember, John stood at the foot of the cross. 
And he saw love personified when the Lord Jesus was giving his life. Many years have gone by. John has been all over the Roman Empire. He's now living in Ephesus. And uh, tradition tells us that John actually, when he was so old that he could hardly walk, that they would sit him up. Now, this is tradition. We don't know this for sure. But that they would sit him up in front of the church body. And he only had one message for all of them. He'd say, beloved, love one another. Now, while this text is kind of intricate and hard to follow through in a way, the key message is very, very clear. Because three times, John says to us, if you love one another. That's the whole text. So if you forget everything I say this morning, you got the whole message anyway. Because John has emphasized it in a threefold way. So just like you to notice with me, I, I, I begin to think about how to, to work our way through it. And I thought, well, maybe the best way is to ask ourselves two or three questions and then let John answer them for us. So imagine for a moment that we're in Ephesus. We've walked by the theater where Paul had part of this great riot in his ministry in Acts chapter 19. And we work our way around through the marketplace and we come to this little building. And up at the top of that building, there are some believers gathered. And so we walk in. There's an old man sitting up front. And he's there because he wants to talk to us. His name is John. John's probably well into his 90s by this time. He had been with the Lord Jesus during the course of his earthly ministry. He had stood at the cross. He had took the Lord Jesus' mother Mary to look after her during the course of her lifetime. And then he had gone out into ministry and he had written the Gospel of John and he's written the epistles of John and now he's writing the book of Revelation so he's a very important figure. And we come to John and we say, John, we've been reading one of your letters. The letter of First John, the first one you wrote. And we just, we just have a few questions we'd like to ask you about those. And we say to him, I say, well, John, why is love so important? If you're going to keep talking about love, why is love so important? He says, well, let me give you two reasons. And notice in the text, I won't always refer to it, but what I say is in the text, I say, hey, there's two reasons why you should love one another. First is because love is from God. That is the, the source of love. The kind of love that we're talking about is a love that comes from God. It originates with God, and God is love himself. That's a very interesting phrase because it means that God in his personal nature is love. And everything that God does, he's motivated out of love. So John is saying that one of the reasons why that you should be loving one another is not only because this kind of love that comes from God is important, but because God himself is important. So we say, well, thank you, John, but... We have another question we need to ask you. And that question is, if we love one another, that is, if we, if we are seeking the highest good for others, what does that say about us? Well, he says, well, I can give you that answer as well. And notice with me in 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 7. 
He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. That's why we should love one another. And everyone who is, who loves, who, who loves is born of God and knows God. So he says, the evidence of our new birth, of your new birth, is if we truly love one another from the heart. Now the new birth is a miraculous event that takes place in the life of everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus. Think about it for a moment. When, when the sperm of a man joins with the ovum of a woman, a whole new physical life comes into being. Who can understand that? In the same way, when you and I believe something miraculous, supernatural happens, because up until that time, the Spirit of God has been persuading us that we're lost sinners, that we need to be saved. And the way he does that is he uses the word. So, for example, maybe some of us, you know, maybe read the gospel for the first time in a gospel track, or maybe we heard of a Billy Graham crusade, or someone witnessed to us, and the word was planted in our mind. The Spirit of God begins to work with that word. And he begins to bring us along to the point where he persuades us that we need to be saved, that we are lost. And when I believe, that is when I take God at his word, and could I just digress for a moment and say, brothers and sisters, probably it's not good to keep adding things to the word believe. In fact, I happen to believe that faith is not a matter of the will. I think it's a realization that there is a point we reach in which we understand that we're lost and the Spirit of God kind of turns on the light. And in that moment, something supernatural happens. And the Spirit of God acts upon the Word of God and brings about this new birth. And John says that this kind of love is evidence that you have been born of God that you've experienced a new birth. So that means that people who are unsaved cannot love like we as believers can. They can't have agape love because this is the kind of love that originates with God. But John says something else. I think this is really interesting. He says not only is he born again, but he knows God. And that word knows occurs a number of times. In the book of First John, it's almost like he wrote it, say, I want you to know something, so I'm going to tell you lots of things so that you can know whether you're in fellowship with the Lord or not. So he says here that this kind of love is not, ev- not only evidence of the new birth, but that we're acquainted with God. We know him. Now, it's interesting. Notice this. I don't know that there's any significance to this. But notice with me how he states something positively and then negatively, and he leaves a word out that I think is really interesting. He says in verse number 7 again, if you'll just look at your Bibles, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now he states it negatively, The one who does not love does not know God. He doesn't say he's not born again. But if we take both of those terms, born again and knowing, to mean the same thing, then it's okay. 
But he could be implying that a Christian can be born again, but if he's not practicing love in his life, it shows that he's not very acquainted with with the Lord in terms of his personal fellowship. That's possible, isn't it, in the life of a believer? So I'm not sure whether that's kind of what John means here, but I think it's quite striking. So John's answer to us is that that uh, the evidence of our, our loving one another is that we're born of God and we know God. We know God. And then we say to John, well, John, we have another question then. If this kind of love is so important, how did God manifest his love toward us? Now, I don't mean to kind of be technical with you, but individual words to me in the Bible are really, really important. I think we all believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, don't we? That the Bible is without error. And while there are differences in the way people translate the Bible, in the end, the Bible is inerrant. So sometimes when I come to these differences of Bible translations, I'm really intrigued by them. And just notice with me again, I think I may have mentioned it in the reading, but he says to us in verse number 9 and 10, because there he's going to tell us, you know, about God's love toward us. He says, by this the love of God was manifested in us. Now, I've always been intrigued by that because uh, I think the New King James may say uh, toward us, which is true. The Lord Jesus came and died on the cross. He, God manifested his love toward us. That's true. Uh, Christian Standard Bible translates it among us. That could be true as well. But the New American Standard says in us. So I keep thinking to myself, how how can his love be manifested in us when he goes on to talk about the historical coming of the Lord Jesus to die on the cross? And maybe the only answer to that is that when he died on the cross and we received him as our personal Savior, then God shed abroad in our hearts his very own love. That's what Romans chapter 5 says. But I think the point that John is trying to make is that if we are to love one another, then how's God show his love toward us? Well, he tells us, gives us that answer in verses 9 and 10, where he says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live, have spiritual life through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation. So he's telling us that the Lord Jesus became incarnate when he came from heaven to earth, and he came in order to give us spiritual life. But not only that, he says in verse number 10 that his death became a propitiation for our sins. And I'm sure you've studied this uh, this concept here in the New Testament many times before, but the word propitiation really means kind of satisfying the righteous demands of a holy God. Because you see, before we were saved, we were unsavable. But when Jesus died on the cross, then it put us in a position where we are savable because God then has a moral basis on which he can righteously save us. And the way he got there was the Lord Jesus satisfying the righteous demands of a holy God. 
Now, this word is used in pagan cultures in a different way. It, it, it's the idea of, of appreciating or satisfying, you know, the anger of a pagan god. I may have related this experience to you uh, on another occasion, but uh, many years ago I was in traveling in northeast India up in the city of Calcutta. Well, quite a moving city to, to be in. And on uh, January 26, I remember the day because it happened to be my birthday, I was staying at a Baptist mid-mission house, and uh, there were two missionaries from Nepal that were also uh, staying there. And they said to me, they said, uh, brother said, would you like to go visit Kali Temple? Well, I had never heard of Kali. She's the goddess of destruction up in northeast India, so I was quite happy to go. And we went and uh, got there, and there were just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people because it was a special holiday. And I walked around the temple. They actually, as I remember, they had seven Hindu priests that kind of managed the, the temple. And uh, the picture, the, the statue, whatever you call them, of Kali was not a very, very attractive female. But at any rate, I went around, and when I came around the uh, east side, I saw a group of men lined up uh, with little goats, and they had a, 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 a leash around, kind of like a leash, kind of looked like we might walk a dog or something down the street, but they were 40 or 50 of them. And they would bring them up and take them into, a, into an area where they would wash them. That was a purification act. And then they would take them into this pit. Now, in the pit, there were two altars. One was quite large. I think they might have used that for a, a water buffalo. I'm not real sure. But the other one was for smaller animals. And so one by one, they would take those little goats in, lay them on the altar with their head hanging over, and one of the men would come down with a very sharp sword and cut its head off. Well, the the body of the little goat was taken by the family, and the priest took the head, kind of reminiscent of what you might read in the Old Testament, although obviously very, very different. Um, so I began to inquire, well, why, why would they be offering these goats like this? Well, they said it could be for maybe one of two reasons. If, for example, a student had uh, passed an exam, was able to get into university, which is a huge thing in Asia. I mean, it's like life comes to an end if you can't get into a university or to a college. Uh, so if they did, then they would come and offer a goat as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. But oftentimes, if they had some tragedy in their lives, some difficulty, then they would then they would assume that Kali was angry with them, and so they would come and make that sacrifice to propitiate, to cool down the anger of Kali, the goddess of destruction. Well, that's not the concept in the Bible, is it? No, it really means that Lord Jesus, by his death, satisfied all the righteous demands of a holy God. And that was how his love was manifested. Now he goes on and we ask him a third question. Okay, John, if that is true, how can others see love in my life if you can't see God? And this is where I get a little bit like I'm out of my depth. 
But notice what he says in verse number 12. He says, no one has seen God at any time. John had made the very same statement similar to that in in John's Gospel, chapter 1. He says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, he tells us two things. God abides in us. So we ask ourselves, what does he, what could he mean by that statement? If you can't see God, but we're loving one another, and God abides in us, what is he really telling us? He's telling us that even though we cannot see God with a physical eye, we can see God's love because it's being manifested in our lives. I think that's the point that he's trying to make. Now, this kind of love that he's talking about, you know, it's not, it, 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 it's talking about the pattern of our lives. It's talking about, you know, the, the attitude of my heart toward others, my desire to help others, and showing that in words and actions. In fact, love generally in the New Testament is in verb form, not so much in noun form. So I think that's kind of interesting. That's the first thing. The second thing is that if if our loving one another demonstrates God's love because they can see it in us, he says, and his love is perfected in us. So I ask myself, John, what do you mean by that statement? How can God's love be be perfected in us? Well, if we understand the meaning of the word, then we can kind of arrive at what he's driving at. The word perfection carries with it the idea of reaching a goal. So it's almost, brothers and sisters, if you and I are demonstrating love in word and action, then God's love, what he intended for us to love one another, is actually reaching its goal in our lives. Maybe maybe an example would be like some of you I see have small children. And I'm sure you'd like to see all your kids grow up and get saved and serve the Lord and love him, you know, and serve him. Well, as in every family, sometimes some kids don't do so well spiritually. And others do well. And those kids who grow and mature spiritually, then the goal of the parents is perfected in them. In the sense that their love is reaching its goal. That's what they wanted for their kids. And in the same way, that's what John is telling us. That's why love in the New Testament is so terribly important. is because it not only is evidence that we're born again, that we're acquainted with God. And not only that, because we're going to demonstrate what God is like when we love one another. And we're allowing God to perfect in us his love. It reaches its goal. Now, there's a lot to be said from this passage, and I don't have time to go through the whole text. But I do want to take time to point out something. I hope I'm not getting a little bit too technical with you. I don't mean it to be that way. Just trying to help us understand the depth of what John is really trying to communicate to us in this text. Notice he says for the first time in verse 12, he says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. The word means he remains in us. So what does that mean? It just simply means that we're indwelt by God. 
And then he picks up on that and he wants to help us understand the importance and the proof that God lives in us. So notice what he says in the text. He says in verse 12, God abides in us. Verse 13, so how can we know that he abides in us? He's told us that, you know, if we're loving one another, he does abide in us. He says, by this we know that he abides in us, he indwells us, and he in us. He's talking about the interchange of divine life. He says, and and we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. That's how we know that God abides in us, because he's given us of his spirit. Verse 14, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, this may seem a little bit out of context, but remember that John was writing against a background of a cult that denied the the deity of the Lord Jesus, the incarnation of Christ. So he wants to make it really important that in loving one another, abiding in him, you have to embrace this truth that Jesus Christ is actually who he claimed to be. And so he says in verse number 14, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So whoever confesses, that is, acknowledges in reality, that Jesus is the Christ, God abides in him. So one of the proofs that we abide in God is by our acknowledging and accepting that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So he's trying to help us understand the proofs that we're indwelt by God. But then he ends the chapter by talking about the importance of love now in light of the judgment seat of Christ. So let's read one more time what he has to say. I'll just make a couple of comments. Verse number 17. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. That's referring, obviously, to the Bema Seat of Christ. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. So what's John trying to tell us in that verse? He's trying to tell us that love now, that is the pattern of our lives, love in the life of believers and among believers will give us confidence in the day of judgment. Because as John says, as he is, so are we in this world. What he means is, even as Jesus is love, and we are practicing love, we are like he is in this world. And that will give us confidence. Because fear is a form of punishment. He talks about that in verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. I was thinking about this last night. How how could you best illustrate that? That love now will give us confidence of the beam of seed of Christ. Because sometimes I think thinking about the future beam of seed of Christ can make us a little bit, we can have a little bit of fear. In fact, I think John actually tells us in chapter 2, or chapter 1, I guess it is, um, that it's possible 
at the bema seat of Christ to have momentary regret because he tells us to abide in him so that when he appears, we may not shrink away from him at his coming. Now, the answer to not shrinking away is loving one another. And I was thinking about, well, how could I, how can you, we could illustrate that? Well, um, my wife and I spend a fair bit of time on the highway. And um, I use Waze GPS in my car. I don't know what you guys use. I use Waze, and every once in a while it will say, there's a policeman a half a mile. It will warn me that there's a policeman on the side of the road. Now, if I'm doing 85, 90 miles an hour, I don't want to hear that message because I'll immediately hit my brake and I'll want to slow down. But because I have fear that I could get a ticket. But if I'm driving the speed limit, which I normally do, believe it or not, I drive, if it's 70 miles an hour, that's exactly what I, I drive, 70 miles an hour. So I can blow right past the policeman. I have no fear at all. I have confidence. Why? Because I'm driving the speed limit. And maybe that's what John is helping us understand, why love is so important. Not only because it's evidence of our new birth, that we're personally acquainted with God, that we're reflecting God's love, that we abide in him, but it will give us confidence in that future day. So John says, well, you know, there's really, I can't really explain all of this to you, but let me give you my conclusion. So the conclusion of our text is in verses 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Don't you find it strange that God still has to command us to love? I find that you would think that would come naturally, don't you think so? But God still has to command us to love one another. And love can be shown in many different ways, compassion, other ways. And John is really primarily interested in the kind of love that shows itself in action. And uh, I just closed with a little, just a really brief story about a little boy that I read about some years ago. And down the street from him, um, was a widow. Her husband had died and she was all alone, uh, lonely, uh, didn't have a lot of visitors. So the story goes, this little boy uh, was able to get a little bouquet of flowers and he walked down to her house and went inside. And after some time, he came back home and his mother said to him, she said, well, I don't remember his name. We'll call him Johnny. She said, well, Johnny, what did you while you, while you were there? She said, I just gave her flowers and I sat on her lap and I cried with her. That's love. That's a demonstration of love. And brothers and sisters, if there's any one message that you and I need to keep reminding ourselves of, if there's any one command that we need to be reminded of, is if we love one another. Don't you think that's an important message?
So we need to be loving one another and trust that that will be true in your fellowship here at Shawnee Bible Chapel. Father, we thank you for manifesting your love toward us, among us, and even in us by sending the Lord Jesus that we might live through him. Thank you that he did offer himself as a propitiation for our sins. Thank you for the capacity to love. Thank you for the indwelling spirit that can strengthen us and give us that assistance we need so that our lives will be characterized by by love for you and love for one another. So we give you thanks, Father, for the privilege of reading your word together, and we commit ourselves to you for today. In Jesus' name, amen.